This week, in a major Atlanta periodical, an award-winning first-place essay was published. The author was a Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia suburban mother who wrote a story of some first-person account events and conversations that took place last summer, 2015. If you read the piece, it's emotional, it's moving, and as you read it, I think you will figure out that it's not too hard to understand why it won first place. I'm going to share a few excerpts in our introduction from that essay. It was a hot summer day three weeks after school had ended, and my girls and I were running errands in the car. Hannah, who is 16, was sitting in the front seat next to me. Emma, who's 12, was in the back seat. I glanced in the rearview mirror and was struck by Emma's reflection. She was dressed in a t-shirt and a pair of boys' shorts. Can someone tell me why Emma wants to look like a boy? I blurted. My question was met with nervous laughter from both girls. It was obvious that they were keeping something from me. I didn't know what to do but to ask. I sat there waiting for an answer, but there wasn't one. And so then my anger grew as I was feeling excluded. Fine, don't tell me, I said. Mom, Hannah, the older sister, said. She drew out that word with a very condescending tone, characteristic of teenagers who think that they know more than their parents. Apparently, in this case, she did. Isn't it obvious, she asked. A few days after that conversation in the car, I found Hannah alone in her room, the older sister. I asked her again, what is going on with Emma? She hesitated at first, but finally came out with it. Emma is transgender, she said very matter-of-factly. What does that mean? I know I'd heard the term before, but I had never really thought much about it. Hannah said, Emma's a boy now. But Emma's a girl. She can't be a boy, I said. This sounded ridiculous to me. She feels like she was supposed to be a boy instead of a girl, Hannah explained. Confusion and disbelief settled in as I sank back in my chair. I tried to reason through it. Emma was clearly a girl. She couldn't just all of a sudden decide she wanted to be a boy. Or could she? I still wasn't sure what to say, but I knew I needed to talk to Emma, so I went into her room one afternoon. Your sister told me what had been going on, I said. My voice was was shaking. I was trying to hold back tears. Emma gave me a sheepish grin and looked down. I want you to know that it's okay. I took her hand, held it tight, and said, we love you, no matter what. The essay then goes on to describe the next few scenes of the summer. Emma going to get her hair cut short to look more like a boy, taking her to the store and buying new clothes, and finally taking her to a baseball game at the Atlanta Braves Stadium and encouraging her, go, use the boys' bathroom. But the last section of the story is the one that is clearly the most moving, poignant part of the essay. The mom said, So there I was, driving in the car alone one day, and an overwhelming sense of helplessness came crashing down on me. With no one around, the tears just started 
pouring out. So I turn to God for answers. Now let's pause and remember, this is a major periodical in Atlanta, Georgia, and if you don't know, Atlanta in the South has lots of people who attend church every Sunday and who say they believe in God. So this is an important part of the story as God comes into the picture. So she says, I turn to God for answers. What am I supposed to do with this? I cried out to him. The response was immediate. Love her. It wasn't audible, but it was clear as day in my head. The tears kept coming. I asked again, God, what am I supposed to do? And again, he said, love her. Once more. What do I do? I heard it in my head and then finally in my heart. Love her. The tears finally slowed. I thought about the answer to my question. I, I felt my spirits lifting. I can do this. It's what I've always been doing. It was simple. I didn't need to add anything else to it. Unconditionally love my child like a parent should. For the first time since this journey began, in that moment, I felt the burden ease off of me. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about that story or what you find interesting about it, maybe at all. But one thing I didn't realize until reading it a second time was the pronouns used throughout the whole story, especially in this most poignant part. I didn't catch this. I don't know if you did, but three times, God apparently speaks to this mom and says, love her. Love her. Love her. That's how the essay ends, the climactic moment of clarity from God. Love her. The title of the essay is Emma is a Boy. So I stepped back and asked, which is it? Is Emma a boy? Or is she supposed to love her as God speaks to her? Is it obvious as you listen to stories like these, or as you just open your ears to the world around us, that there is some confusion about gender in the world we live in? If you're wondering why I've shared this story, one reason is that for the next three weeks as we look at Genesis 2, we're going to be looking at just these matters. We're going to be asking the questions, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? That will be next week. And then finally, two weeks from today, Lord willing, what does it mean to be married? Another reason I wanted to share this story is that by publishing this essay in a major periodical of Atlanta, Georgia, it's telling us something by the judge's and publisher's decision to put this out. Is the issue that the viewpoints of our world is changing? No. By publishing this as the award-winning essay, these things have already changed my friends. They're not simply saying this is a well-written essay. These editors, these judges are saying, moms, listen up. This is the way you should respond to. The last reason I wanted to share this is because I want us to ask the question that the mom asked earlier. 
Let me read it one more time. Emma was clearly a girl. Shouldn't she just, could she really just decide that she was a boy? Or could she? Can we decide if we want to be a boy or a girl, a man or a woman? What does it really mean to be one of those anyway? Is a real man the brave heart William Wallace who goes out and conquers, never wears pink or purple? Let's turn our Bibles and look to God's Word for some of these answers. Can conveniently find this on page two as we look at Genesis chapter two and continue our study through the beginnings. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 4, and read to the end of the chapter to get the context for these next three weeks' messages. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last 
is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A few weeks back, I gave 10 reasons why we should read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, not simply as an origins story, but also, or more poignantly, as a temple story. As the weeks have gone on, and I have thought back about that message and continued studying Genesis 1 and 2, I want you to know that I not only still believe that this is a temple story, but if we wanted to, and if there was time, I could give 10 more reasons that I have come across as I've studied, read, and thought about Genesis 1 and 2, but we're not going to do that today. Just want you to know that I firmly believe that what the main point of this story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that God is making a space where God and humans can be together. And in the first five books of the Bible, they call that space later on a temple. So whether you want to call it a temple story, a sanctuary, a sacred space, that's what I mean when I say this is a temple story. Now that's important because I'm going to make one single point this morning. I want to make one point about what it means in Genesis chapter 2 for God to make a man and how that role is different than the role he gave the woman. And it's going to make sense if you have in the back of your mind that Genesis 1 and 2 is not just telling us some interesting story about how the beginnings of the world were made, although that's part of what's going on here. He's poignantly, theologically telling us God and man dwell together in a sacred temple-like garden. This would have made a whole lot of sense if you were living in that day and reading it, knowing that gardens were temples in that day. So there's all sorts of different reasons to think this way. So when I say that the first picture that God gives us of men is a priest, that should be, well, of course. And so that's the first and only point of this message. Men, women, all of us in this room, let us know that when God originally designed men, He made them as priests. Read with me chapter 2, verse 15, one more time. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Ten more times you will see these two words that are used in the original language, work and keep, together in the same sentence in the first five books of the Bible. Ten more times. All ten are talking about duties of guess who? Priests. Now let's make sure we're on the same page here. When I say priests, some of you, if you're not familiar with the Bible or the language that I'm referring to, I'm not talking about modern day priests. If you have a Catholic background, I'm not talking about Catholic priests. I'm not talking about any other religious priests that you might think of when you hear the word priest. I'm talking more specifically about the priests described in this unit of the Bible. So we believe that the first five books are a unit together. Five different stories, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are all the books of Moses in one unit. 
And that unit talks a lot about these priests. And when they do, it says that their job, one of them for that matter, is to work and to keep. When you read your English Bibles, though, it won't use those words. It will say to serve or to worship and to guard or protect the temple. So let's insert in that idea right here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. The garden that we've argued is a temple. And he is to worship the Lord. He is to serve the Lord. And he is to guard it and protect it. That, I believe, is the way we should be reading chapter 2, verse 15. These words could be referring to literally working the ground like a gardener. But context should tell us, not only because, as we've argued, this is a temple metaphor, but the only other time these two words are used together. So if the work word is used by itself, sometimes if it's only talking agriculturally, it's talking about gardening work. But put together with work and keep, that's priestly work. So when we're talking about those priests that are being referred to later We're talking about guarding and taking care of a temple. We're talking about keeping it pure and holy. Not letting any undefiled person or thing get in it. At proper and appropriate times and in the proper manner, going into the temple, making sacrifices on behalf of God's people, praying and interceding for those people. This is the image that God is giving us in Genesis chapter 2 of the first man and what his calling is. He is to worship. He is to guard and protect the holy, sacred space that God has given him. Let's turn to one of those examples. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 3, so you can see with your own eyes this point. If you're not seeing it, and just, okay, sounds good. You're going to miss the whole point of this message if the only point I'm making is that men are to be thinking of themselves as priests. In Numbers chapter 3, we get the duties of the sons of Aaron, and Aaron is the first of a succession of priests in this section of the Bible and throughout the story of Israel. I want you to notice briefly in verse 3 that these priests were ordained to serve as priests, serve, to work as priests, to worship as priests. There's one of our words. But notice in verse 4 the consequences of not serving the Lord appropriately. Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord as a witness in the wilderness of all of Sinai. Fire fell down on them. I I wanted to highlight this real quick so that way we start to raise the bar a little bit of the seriousness of the priestly duty. Priests are to protect And to fail to protect is to let people come in and die. Big deal. Not little deal, big deal. Now let's read verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Drop down. You will see these words from Genesis 2.15 in these verses. Verse 7. These priests shall keep guard over him. There's our word keep. Keep guard. Watch over and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they work or as they minister, as they worship at the tabernacle. They shall guard, there's our word again, all the furnishings of the tent of the meeting and keep guard, there it is again, 
over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And there's our word again, to work or to worship or serve. Verse 9, And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, they shall be put to death. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, the first priest, the first Aaron, put him in a temple-like garden of Eden to minister there, to guard it and protect it. Now watch this next verse. See if this does not sound exactly like what we just read in Numbers chapter 3, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Little deal or, oh yeah, big deal, this priestly commandment that he's being received. Here's what he's supposed to do. Here's the command that he's been given. Be sure to teach that command to all of the people as you be fruitful and multiply in this garden, especially the woman that I give you, and keep her, protect her. Watch over her. Don't let anything come into the garden and distract you from this purpose of holiness and purity. This is the kind of language that makes the priestly Genesis 2 connection, I think, quite clear. Therefore, men, your role is unique. Women have never once, as far as I'm understood, serving as priests in the Old Testament or the Bible. Sometimes you see prophetess, but you never see a woman priest. In Genesis 2, women are not around when these descriptions and commands are given. Where's Eve at? Where's the woman at? She's not even there yet. She doesn't even exist. Next week, we will look more closely at the woman's unique role, but for now, the man's unique role is to serve as a priest, to serve as someone who ministers, who worships, who guards and protects his family, the people around him, the women and children around him, the people in his church. This is the role that God has assigned for men and its purpose. And in the same way that men had no choice about the biological arrangement of their body, so they have no choice about the role that they are to fill as priests. God alone chooses and determines whether you are both male and female and what that role then means to be man and then woman. The only choice you have is whether you will accept or reject the calling that God has given for you as a male or female. Today, all around us, we see young girls who are like Emma in the story earlier, who are struggling to accept the call of God to be a woman. And that, I know, is a real issue. I know that that might be an issue for some of you in this room or in your past. And I plead for you to consider the story of Genesis 1 and 2 is a description of a good God who is gracious. And everything He creates, He says, is good. No, no, no. 
It's very good. This original design of male and female and the roles by which you are to embody as a male or female are good roles. To reject that is to reject God, to turn your back on Him, to shake your fist and say, no, I know better than you, God. So I want to gently, not yellingly, encourage that if that is you today, I'd encourage you to talk more about this. Part of the story I didn't read about Emma is that for a long time she kept this in hiding. For a long time she was afraid to express these feelings and thoughts with the people around her. That's why it was like, Mom, duh, this transition, this thought process, this has already been a foregone conclusion. Where have you been, Mom? My hope and prayer is that if you are not struggling with this at Embassy Church, that you would have a posture of helping make this a safe place for us as a church to be honest about all different kinds of feelings and thoughts that we have and not look down at people and make them feel ostracized or act like, oh, that's gross. Ew. And again, if this is your personal struggle, I want to ask you, Are you ready to be truly loved? Different than the story we heard earlier. In the picture that they were presenting of what loving her looked like, my hope and prayer is that we as a church would speak the truth in love about this gender confusion issue. By truly telling you that the greatest and truest thing about you is not the thoughts and feelings you have about yourself, but what the thoughts and feelings God has about you. The truest thing about us is not our perception of ourself or what we want to be. The truest thing about us is what God has already said we are and how he has made us. You will find greater freedom when you live the way God made you to live. This piano behind me, it was made to play music. It was not made to vacuum this floor. Some of us treat gender and freedom that way. Well, I want the freedom to choose to do whatever I want with anything that I have in in, in this world. So if I feel like I want to do that with it, no, 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 no. You will not get the most usefulness out of that if you try and act like that's a vacuum cleaner. But you will make beautiful music when you know that its design was to play beautiful music. That's the difference that we see all around us. People trying to say and think that I am autonomously, all on my own, able to decide whatever I want to decide for the sake of freedom I'm going to do with whatever I want to do with it. I'm free to do that. Nobody can tell me what to do. What we see in Genesis chapter 2 is that God has designed man and woman for different roles and purposes, and this good design is for your good so that you will experience true freedom, true beauty, true joy, and true happiness. Therefore, as a church, we must love those around us 
that when they share those feelings, we can't just say, well, it's okay, just be whoever you want to be. No, we must tell them lovingly, graciously, be exactly who God made you to be, and you will find the deepest meaning and joy that you could ever imagine. The story is really sad when you see what happens when people do not embrace the role God gave them. Adam, in this story, it doesn't end in chapter 2, it continues into chapter 3. He did not accept the calling of manhood and masculinity. He rejected the role and purpose that God had given him. He did not protect the garden. In chapter 3, it says that there was a serpent more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he came to the woman. He asked her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now ask yourself, how would she know that? Remember the story, process here. She was not even around yet. The only way she would know is if who told her? Adam. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So far, so good, Adam. You told her. She knows. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, Oh, you, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was, who was with her. We don't know when, but at some point, it seems obvious, he was there. Was he there the whole time? I would think yes. He sat back and did nothing. He abdicated his responsibility. He remained silent. He did not work and serve and protect the garden from the serpent that came in. Get out of here, serpent! That would have been a better ending to the story. Eve, no, no, no. He is telling you a lie. That is not what God said. He should have been encouraging her. Do you remember when I told you, God is so gracious. He is so good. He told us we could eat of every tree in the garden. Look at all the trees that he made. There are lots of trees. There was just one tree, one tree that we weren't supposed to eat of. He should have been encouraging her with the goodness of God with the generosity of God, with how kind and good He is to create this world and create these trees and say, listen, do not eat of this tree. He did not do this in that moment. He failed. Adam is the priest who is supposed to take responsibility of the garden and protect the woman that he was given. He was supposed to teach her, encourage her, He did none of these things when she needed him the most. Therefore, I conclude for you men, one of the greatest sins that we will often be guilty of is our passivity, our silence, 
our abdication of the role and responsibility we've been given. If you're not seeing it so far, let me read a few more verses for you. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to who? Called to the man and said to him, Where are you, Adam? Come on, get out. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me. He's blame shifting. Do you see what's going on? When you put the two stories next to each other, Adam, be the man who protects, teaches, guards, cares for the purity of this garden. Be fruitful and multiply in it. In comes the serpent. He fails. He blame shifts. One of the most helpful images of manhood that has been given to me, I've probably shared this with some of you men already. I want you to imagine a few months from now, snow's about to come, the weather changes, it gets colder, and imagine we have a pickup truck. You're driving in a pickup truck, empty pickup truck, lots of snow on the ground. Rear wheels only, no four wheels, only rear wheels. Anybody know what's going to happen if you're driving a pickup truck on a snowy road with rear wheel drive, no front wheels, no four wheels, and no weight in the back? What's going to happen? You're going to slide all over the place. Woo! You know, it's good for donuts, but it's not good for driving straight. This is a picture of Genesis 2 and true biblical manhood. When you have no weight in the back of the truck. When you have no responsibility keeping you down, you're going to drive all over the place. You will not be in congruence and in harmony with the design God has made. Brothers, men, young men, older men, it is good for us to take responsibility and feel the weight of that responsibility and take it seriously. You will drive much straighter down the narrow path that God has called you and not slip and slurve all over the place. Own up to this responsibility. We have been called to be the head of the home, leaders of the church, to speak up and to lay down our lives for the women, the children, and anyone else that God has put around us in the space that we live. It should be no surprise that our first scripture reading of the service was from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for you. And if you notice closely in that chapter of chapter 5, he starts using priestly language to present her pure and blameless. Without spot or wrinkle, he died as a sacrifice for you. Jesus, the priest is the husband who washes his wife with the word. Do you see what Paul is doing? 
He gets it. Are you getting it? We are to be priests who wash with the word of God, teach the word and commands of God. We are to feel the responsibility of not domineering over women, but feeling the responsibility of every day laying down our lives like Jesus laid down his life for his bride. In case there's any confusion here that when I say head, that that somehow means you are to be Mr. Macho Man. Do what I say, woman. That is crazy, crazy talk. Oh, please. No, no way in the world distort the Bible this way. The head of the church is Jesus. The head of the home is a man who lays down his life like a servant like Jesus. Die. That's what it looks like, men. Don't twist the Bible and say, she's just to obey me. No, you're to obey God as a servant and fulfill this responsibility. It is weighty, men. Out of the men and women role responsibility, I don't know about you, but I think we got the short end of the deal here. We got the harder job. I hope you're feeling that. It should be no surprise that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when talking about the leaders in the local church who are to teach and have authority, they are to be men, and he ties it directly into Genesis 1 and 2. So if we want to read the Bible the way the New Testament authors read the Old Testament, they apply leadership in the home to the headship to the man. And leadership in the church to the role of a man to feel this priestly responsibility to take care of, to preach and teach God's word, and make sure that all of God's flock are protected. Protected from the serpent, protected from lies of this world. Embassy Church, at this moment, I want to make it clear how much I love all of you especially you men. This is not the sort of message, at least I'm hoping it's not, that's like, all right, guys, it's guy time. Let's kick you around a bit and tell you how bad you stink at being men. No, 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 no. By far. The number one thing I have told people outside of this church and probably many of you in this church, Phil, what is one thing that you're thankful for about embassy? It is the number of godly men that he has given us. The number of men who care about teaching God's word rightly. The number of men who care for their wives and lay down their lives and don't just sit around day after day saying, woman, get me that. I'm glad that even though I was saying, please don't distort the Bible, I am not seeing that time after time in counseling conversations. I'm certainly seeing it among Christian men, so I'm hoping that there's not for a second we think that way, but here at Embassy, I have seen time after time men who think very differently than that, who pray and intercede like a priest should, who sacrifice their time and their schedules for their families, who care about the purity of this temple, this church, love this church. We have fathers, we have husbands, we have single brothers who care about their sisters in Christ. And so I want you to know, I praise God. I rejoice that in these last two years, God has given us some wonderful, godly men, not because you're great, but because he has done an amazing work in your life. 
And most of you, unfortunately, don't get to see all that I see week after week as a pastor. So that's why I want to take this time to not beat you over the head and say, come on, men, try harder. No, men, keep pressing on. So many of you are doing such an excellent job at being an example of all that we're talking about. And then others of us are struggling with this calling. Not necessarily that you're questioning whether or not you want to be a man or not, but questioning whether you want to actually lay down your life for others in your life on a regular basis. Some of you are doubting whether this is actually a really good plan. If there's actually joy on the other side of self-sacrifice, it hurts sometimes when you speak up. Some of you are struggling to teach your family and take on the responsibility in your home. And if this is you, I have two things for you today. These two things are for all of us, but especially those men who feel like, I am doing awful at this. First, if God has in fact given us several godly men who are at least imperfectly trying to live out by the power of the Holy Spirit, ask these men to help you and disciple you. Me preaching week after week, these sermons will do much good but combined with regular meeting with men who are helping walk through the daily details of your life will do the greatest good that I could imagine. Humble yourself and accept the calling to be a man by sitting yourself underneath another man who has done this a little longer than you. Second, all of us in some way or another should be burdened by the guilt of our failures. So know that Hebrews chapter 4 says we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness, but he is one who in every respect has been tempted as you were, yet he never sinned. So draw near to him with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace that you will receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. You failed as a priest like Adam did like Noah did, like Abraham did, like Moses did, like David did. I could go down the line. Every man in the Bible except Jesus has not taken on the calling that they've been given and done it with perfection. But we have one who did. He is the bridegroom, the only husband who has every single moment of his existence laid down his life for his bride washes her, intercedes for her, prays for her without ceasing. We have a husband who gave his life for her. What we have is another Adam. In Romans chapter 5, I want you to hear the sweet words of Romans 5. We need a new head. The first head, Adam, not so good. We read the story. So Paul in Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. 
For Adam was a type, a, a foreshadowing picture of the one who was to come, Jesus. And so the free gift that comes through Jesus is not like that trespass that Adam did. For if many died through the one man's trespass of Adam, how much more has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following that one man's sin brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses is now bringing justification. For if because of one man's trespass, his sin, death would reign from that one man, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so this one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man, Jesus, his obedience, many will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. We need a whole new head, a whole new humanity, a whole new Adam, and that is who we got when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, on the earth to be the husband to be the new Adam, to be the new priest. Perfectly obeying all of God's commands, protecting and guarding his sheep, his wife, his people, and dying on a cross for our sins so that through the one man's obedience on the cross, life, righteousness, joy, everlasting joy could be offered to you and me today, guilty sinners. That's whether you're a man or a woman. If you're under the headship of Adam, death reigns. Male or female, if you are under the headship of Jesus Christ, by faith and faith alone, not by works, so that no one would boast and say, well, it's because I'm doing so well. No, but the one man and his righteousness, believing by faith, is now given to us all. We started with a story, a story about a mom hearing from God, love her, love her, love her. I don't know about you, but one of the first things I thought was a broken, rebellious, failed priest-like man named Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Jesus restores broken men who fail in their responsibility in the greatest moment. Have you failed? Know that the Jesus that you can put your faith in right now is the God who wants to restore you, build you up, and give you a calling. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you now because these things are so incredibly helpful. All of them are. Instructions about who we are, about what we were made for, 
the clarity that we can have now. We want to thank you, God, that even in the midst of different cultures and cultural stereotypes, we can know. We can know what we're here for and why we were made. Men and women, thank you for this word. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness that you provide in Jesus. We have disobeyed these commands. We have thought that we should just decide how we should live, how we should exist. It's been so foolish, God. We confess our foolishness now and we ask for your grace through Jesus to forgive us of our sins and empower us through your spirit to be these kind of men and women who receive your calling and do it for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. The plan is that after this service,